Alright, Acts chapter 13 tonight. The bad news is I'll be longer than five minutes. The good news is I promise I won't be as long this week as I was last week. Amen. Amen. Hey, if your special had been shorter, we've been out of here way, way long time ago. And two and a half minute specials. No, I'm just kidding, Brother Troy. Acts chapter 13 tonight. And I'm going to speak to you on maybe one of the most misunderstood and most confusing topics in modern-day Christianity. Uh, and you know where we're at. It, Brother JT, it is the same slide, the journey, in case you want to put that up there. You don't have to. It's up to you. But we're covering the journey of Paul. And at this point, we've covered Saul and how he's grown and he had his Damascus Road experience, and amazing things are happening. And last week, we looked at how other people around him were cultivating an environment whereby he could grow. And that's our job as a church, is to cultivate that same type of environment. Now, we move the past few chapters in the book of Acts have been all about Peter, and we almost leave talking about Saul. Well, we pick it back up in Acts chapter 13, and now... We almost completely abandon Peter, and the book of Acts begins to concentrate on Saul or Paul's ministry almost the rest of the way. Acts chapter 13, verse number 1. I want to speak to you about this tonight. How to discern the call of God on your life. How to discern the call of God on your life. We'll only read four verses, so please do your very best to pay attention and concentrate on what the Bible has to say for us tonight. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13, verse number 1, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin tonight. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you tonight begging for your help. I come to you begging for your help as a man who is uh, humbled and honored to be preaching to this congregation. But Lord, I am not able to stand here alone. And Lord, all the training I've had and all the uh, uh, seminars and lectures I've heard all fall short when I really need to deliver the truth of God. Lord, I have nothing to offer these people apart from what you have to offer them. Lord, I could not summon wisdom or uh, uh, intellect beyond what your word already has for us. So, Father, I am humbly begging for your help. And, Lord, I also ask that your spirit would be in the hearts of the congregation tonight, each and every member, each and every listener, every hearer tonight, that they would apply themselves to this truth. Now, Lord, I promise that I will not be long. And so, Lord, may their hearts be concentrated. May they be attentive. And may they put the cares of this world and the cares of this life behind them and beside them as they listen to what you have for them tonight. I pray that you do a mighty work and a great work in our presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I say that this is one of the most confusing subjects in all of modern-day Christianity is because it has been so mystified as centuries have gone on. Man, if you look in the Bible... People trying to hear from God, people wanting to do the will of God, people that want to hear from Him usually had no problem doing it. Man, Jonah was directly told, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, was, was Jonah's problem his hearing ability? Oh, no. Jonah heard the Lord quite clearly, did he not? His, uh, uh, his obedience may have been a stumbling block, but it was not his inability to get God's will or his inability to find God's presence. So that's not the case in the Bible. And I truly don't believe that it's the case in modern day Christianity that the problem is hearing God. Now books have been written discovering your destiny. 
understanding God's will for your life. And books have been written over and over and over again about how we as uh, lowly people could hear from our high and mighty God. And let's get one thing straight tonight. We are a lowly and undeserving people, but our God is so gracious and so compassionate towards us that he gave us his son so that we could have access to his throne room. So let me say, first of all tonight, there is a will of God for your life. And God wants you to be doing something for Him. But how do you figure out what it is? I mean, can we understand the mind of God? The Bible makes quite clear that we can't. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. The Bible also says in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? With passages like that ringing to us and saying, How could you ever find the will of your God? How could you ever know what God's mind is for you? Man, that's a little bit intimidating that we would be able to figure out the will of an infinite-minded God in our little limited, finite minds. But I believe that we're studying a man tonight that probably we could not pick a better person to study. You know why? Because Paul was quite certain of his calling to the ministry. There was no doubt in his mind. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So in other words, Paul doesn't say, oh, I, I, I just volunteered or I, I just wanted to. Paul says, God placed me in the ministry. And if you read other passages, the Bible says that Paul was separated from his mother's womb to preach the gospel. He knew it, man. There was no doubt about it. You know, there's certain things in this life that I have absolutely no doubt about. I have no doubt about it that sweet tea tastes great. But, easy, John, just say amen. When you disagree, you just keep silent in the church house. Sweet tea tastes great. Now there's, thank you, Sean, amen. I appreciate that help. Not you, John. Now, when I was younger, I did not enjoy the taste of sweet tea. I more so enjoyed the taste of Dr. Pepper. Today, I gave my daughter Dr. Pepper, and she coughed three times and said, (laughs) so you know she's like her daddy because it burns when it goes down. See, I have no doubt that a good, a well-made, see, I'm so Southern, I say a good-made sweet tea. Uh, I have no doubt about it that to me, a well-made sweet tea tastes great. You know what else tastes great? Apple pie. Apple pie. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. You're Aggie, but even you can do that. Amen. Apple pie tastes great. It's about one of the most American treats that you could ever have. Apple pie tastes good. You know what else tastes good to me? Banana pudding. But not just banana pudding alone. Banana pudding smothered in calf slobber. Now, for those of you country folk, uh, we have some northerners here tonight, I'm sure. You may not know what calf slobber is. Calf slobber is whipped cream, but it's great whipped cream. And so I have no doubt about it. Banana pudding by itself is okay. Uh, Bananas by themselves are okay. But when you combine the beautiful, majestic flavor of calf slobber, as appetizing as that may sound, calf slobber and banana pudding and bananas and don't forget the vanilla wafers man you've got like a powerhouse concoction of party in my mouth amen would you agree i said that today and my dad just looked at me condemningly like what did you just say son i said party in my mouth he's like okay uh and you're a (laughs) co-pastor that's what he said And, and so i have no doubt about certain things in my life Now, there's some doubt about other things for sure. I don't know. uh, 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 I'm trying to think what I don't know. I don't know whether the iPhone 6 is better than the Samsung Galaxy S5. And some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
There are a lot of things debatable in this life. See, the guys that drive the bow tie pickup trucks, the Chevys, you know, Chevy all the way, Chevy, we make American Corvettes and stuff. And then there's other guys, my brother-in-law just told me this week, I'll drive a Chevy, I'll drive a Dodge, but I ain't getting in a Ford. That's what he said. And there's a lot of things that are debatable. You know what Paul says was not debatable? His call to the ministry. You know what's not debatable to me? Apple pie, banana uh, pudding, uh, sweet tea, and my call to preach. There's no doubt in my mind. You say, how do you know, Brother Andrew? Because I love reading this book. I love studying this book. I love telling you what I've learned from this book and how it's affected my life. I remember when God called me to preach, and He placed a burden in my life and a joy in my heart to hear other preachers preach to me and to take what I've learned from them and then convey that same message to you. I love preaching, so I have no doubt about my call. I have no doubt in my mind that you, as a normal Christian, can understand the will of God for your life. But how do we do it? Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments. His ways past finding out. Well, tonight I want to study a man, and I want to give you three items that I believe if you'll do these, you will understand your call. Some of you say, man, I wish other people were here to, to, to listen to this message. It would do them some good. No, what we need to do tonight is apply this message to us. And let it so affect us and infect us that others can't help but see it and do it. So I want to take a look at a few things tonight. First of all, if we're going to understand God's will and God's call on our life, we must be serving where we are. You know, I'm just a country boy, and I I don't have a a tremendous IQ. I, I barely passed high school. I barely passed kindergarten, and all you do is recess and take naps there. So I'm very average intellectually. But I know if I'm going to look for somebody to do a task that I want to assign them, I'm not going to look for a guy that's sitting on the couch. I'm going to look for somebody who's already active and already doing something. The Bible right here tells us that Paul, or Saul at this point, was already active and was already serving. Take your Bibles back to Acts chapter 9. Now, we've actually covered this, but this is Paul, or I'm sorry, Saul. This is the same chapter where Saul goes and visits Ananias. Now, Saul's very new to the faith at this point. He doesn't know that much about it. All he knows is that he was knocked to the ground, and the the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him on the Damascus Road. The Bible says here in verse 19 and 20 of Acts chapter 9, And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And verse 20, and what's the next word? Straightway. And straightway he, what's the next word? Preached. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue. Paul, although was a new Christian, a babe in the faith as we might call him, he spent just a little time around the disciples, around people who knew the Bible so that he could learn the Bible. And let me make one thing clear here. I don't believe someone who gets saved ought to be teaching a Sunday school class the next week. And we've had people volunteer, oh, I'm so on fire for the Lord, can I teach an adult Sunday school class? Why don't you learn a little Bible before you do that? Even Saul did that. He spends a little time with the disciples. But the Bible says that, and straightway, he went and he preached Christ. You have to be active where you are. Let me ask you a question. Are you active in this church? So what do you mean by that? I mean, are you performing a task that helps the mission of this church, which is evangelizing lost sinners... Are you performing a task in this church that is furthering the kingdom of God? Because your presence tonight isn't doing that. It's helping you. You're being affected 
Hopefully you're hearing the sermon and it's blessing you and it's helping you and it's edifying you and it's cutting you and it's gnawing on you and it's trying to mold you into what Christ wants you to be. But you being in the pew sitting there is doing nothing to save sinners. Nothing. Are you active? There's two reasons why we must be active in the church. First of all, for our development. See, that's why I say it does us no good to see uh, someone get saved and then the next week they're teaching a Sunday school class because they've had no time to mature. Look in verse number 1 of chapter 13 where we are. Now, if the last word of this chapter, uh, of this verse, the Bible lists off several people, Barnabas, Simeon, Elucius, uh, Manan. But then look down, the very last word of verse number 1, the Bible says, and Saul. Now, who's Saul? Oh, he's the guy that's the persecutor. He's the guy that was the assassin. He's the guy that was uh, consenting unto the death of Stephen. He is the rebel. He's the one who's trying to smother the message of Christ. But look down here in chapter 13. I believe it is verse number 9. Look at this. Then Saul, who also is called Paul. Filled with his Holy Ghost, with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Right here we see a transfer, a a change in the Bible. Right here, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Something takes place, the Bible says, so profound, so amazing, that Saul would no longer be referred to as the old man, but he changes into the new man. Saul was his past. Saul was the skeleton's. Saul was the persecutor. But verse verse number 9, now he's a preacher. Now he's called Paul, and from this point on, he's referred to as Paul, not Saul. You know why? Because he's developing. He's maturing. Even at this point, he spent time alone with the Lord Jesus Christ in the desert, learning about the revelation of Christ, learning how the church would be performed and be molded and how it would grow and how uh, we would do normal things like uh, the Lord's Supper and how that tongues would cease. And, and Paul already knows all this, but right here something amazing happens. He develops to no longer the old man, but the new man. Are you developing See, I, I, I talked in depth last week how that it is this church's obligation to develop people. It is your obligation and my obligation as Christians and members of this church to cultivate an environment that people feel welcome in and that people can grow in. And if we can do anything to help them along their journey, we ought to do that. Amen. But are you developing? Say, Brother Andrew, I've been saved for uh, 25 years. Hey, there's room for growth, I promise. If you study Paul's life, he goes from being the least of the apostles to the chiefest of sinners. You know why? Because he more accurately understood what Christ did for him at the end of his life than he did when he'd just gotten saved. You know what sanctification is? Sanctification is a growth process that is never attained. You never cross the finish line until the day you reach glorification. You see the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you developing? I hope you are. Say, Brother Andrew, I don't need to develop. Did you know that in sports, every athlete develops continuously? Now, how many Rangers fans are here tonight? Even though we're having a terrible season, give me an amen if you're a Rangers fan. Amen. Amen. Miss Vicky, I heard that. Amen. You just need to tone it down a little bit, though. What's the score about the No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> think they won 10 to 1 today, right? Amen. Amen. All right. How many of you that are Rangers fans know a little bit about Adrian Beltre? Amen. How many of you, he is your favorite player on the Rangers? Amen. He is mine. You know why? Because he laughs. And they don't, he doesn't like it when people touch his head. I think it's funny. He looks like he's about to beat them over the head with a baseball bat when they take his helmet off and begin to touch his head. I love it. And he plays the game fun. But if we have anything on the Rangers right now who is a debatable or uh, uh, arguable Hall of Famer, it's him. 
He is right on the cusp. He is an amazing player. Every year he competes for the batting title, which is the highest average. Every year he hits for over 100 RBIs. And yet he does all this while winning gold gloves at third base. The hot corner. Are no doubt the hardest position to play in the infield, and he wins defensive awards while being one of the best players at his position of all time. He's an amazing player. Let me tell you what he did his first season in Major League Baseball. 1998 was his first season. He was 19 years old. He played for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He had 214 plate appearances, which is not a large number by any means. It's about a third of the baseball season. He batted 215. That means every 10 times he came to the plate, he batted safely two, two times out of those 10. There's this thing in baseball called the Mendoza line. It's 200. And it is shameful if you hit under 200. And he is hitting 215. I mean, he is barely a respectable major league player his rookie year. This is Adrian Beltre we're talking about. Man, this is, the, this is one of the greatest players of my generation. He's the best player on the Rangers team, besides Prince Fielder. And <laughs> I just, that was a joke. Adrian Beltre is an amazing athlete. In his very first year in Major League Baseball, he batted 215. Maybe things will get better for him. His age 20 season in 1999, he had 614 plate appearances, which is a lot. Played an entire season of Major League Baseball. He batted 275 that year, which is quite a bit better. 300 is a very respectable batting average. So he's getting closer to what you would consider a, a respectable baseball player, but he is very average at this point in his career. His third season in 2000, his age 21 season, he had 575 plate appearances. He batted 290. Now we're getting to the Adrian Beltre that we know. He's slowly but surely becoming the man that we know today. His next three seasons, all three of which he had at least 500 plate appearances, they went in order like this. 265, 257, and 240. Now he's declining. He's six years into baseball, and he's hitting 240. 240 is not even an average Major League Baseball player, especially at third base, which is considered a power position. You know what? Even a Hall of Fame caliber player needs time to grow. You know, Michael Jordan, when he came in his rookie year, was not near as good as he was when he was holding up his fifth ring. LeBron James, when he came into the league, and we talked about him a little bit last week, LeBron James, when he came in his rookie year, averaged tons of points, was a great passer, but at this point in his career, he is so much more dominant than he was just a few years ago, it is uncanny. Even in athletics, people need to develop. Why should we expect Christianity to be any different? The fact of the matter is, even at your workplace, you went in your first day at work going, uh, can somebody show me a stapler? You needed help. You'd go up to the secretary and say, ma'am, where's the coffee pot? And now they're expecting you to balance uh, uh, pay sheets, and they're expecting you to sell to, to multi-thousand dollar clients. You've got big things now, but when you first came on, you were nobody. You needed help in everything. Development. Christians, are you developing? You cannot serve the Lord and Savior of this world unless you're constantly growing in your relationship with Him. What do you have to tell somebody outside these walls unless you're getting a deeper and deeper and more meaningful relationship with Him each and every day? Are you developing? Man, if you're not developing in our church, I, I, I hate to say this, but you need to find somewhere to grow. And I'm not talking about growing your praise and worship. I'm talking about growing roots in the Word of God. Understanding who your God is and understanding how amazing He is. And getting to know Him a little bit more each and every day. That's development. Uh, it, it, even in athletics, people need to develop. And Christianity is no different. You must develop if you're going to ever understand the call of God in your life. 
You know what a good way to develop is? A few years ago, I had a teenager come up to me at youth camp and say, Brother Andrew, I've never led someone to the Lord. And I know that it's God's will that I do that. I want to do that. So, Brother Andrew, where would you suggest I go? I said, Children's Church. You know why? Because that's where I led my first soul to the Lord. As a 12-year-old uh, uh, a kid just fresh into the youth department, I wasn't knocking doors and saying, I'm confronting you with the, your need for Christ and the fact that you're a sinner. I wasn't saying that. But I remember that I was able to have somebody preach for me, and I sat on the back and plucked fresh fruit. And they came to me and they said, I want to know what to do to be saved. And I said, well, uh, 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 let's see if I can get through this. And the first time's always intimidating. The first time's scary. You say, I've never led anybody to the Lord. The bus ministry is an amazing place to grow and develop. Brother Brian, you had one saved this morning in Children's Church, correct? Would you say weekly, consistently, you have at least kids walk the aisle almost every single week? Absolutely. When I worked in the Children's Church, we had kids walk the aisle every single week. Now, sometimes you have to teach them a little bit about eternal security. Sometimes you have to teach them why they don't have to walk the aisle every single week. Sometimes you have to truly show them the plan of salvation. But what I'm saying to you is, as a teenager comes to me and says, what can I do to grow? How can I become a better evangelist? How can I know how to show someone? This church offers a plethora of different ways for you to grow. It offers them. We sit back not developing. We sit back on our laurels not growing, not not doing anything for the cause of Christ, and we come and show ourselves worthy by our presence at church. You're not doing anything sitting in those pews. Are you helping this church grow? Are you furthering the kingdom of God? We are to develop. Secondly, we are to make a difference. We are to make a difference. The Bible says in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord. So what was Saul busy doing? Ministering. Saul was busy loving on people and showing them their need for Christ. Do you remember what it was like before you met Christ? I mean, do you remember how lonely it was sometimes? Do you remember the feeling at the point of salvation where you realized hell was real and so was heaven? And that if the Lord came back at that moment, you'd be on your way to the worst destination? Do you remember that? Outside of these parameters, outside of these walls, there are so many people who are where you were. And maybe at this point they don't know that there's a real hell. And maybe at this point they don't know there's a real heaven. But they need to hear it. Are you making a difference in our community? Hey, I'll get to worldwide evangelism. But if you're not making an impact here in Joshua, how are we expecting anybody to go make an uh, impact in Brazil? If our church is having trouble seeing people walk the aisle here, what are we doing sending people out of this church to go minister across the land? makes no sense. We are to be making an impact, a difference. Ephesians chapter 4 gives the plan of how God gave people to the church. The Bible says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of saints and the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body in Christ. You see, we need preachers. We need evangelists. We need teachers for the growth and perfecting of saints and for the edifying of the body of Christ. The Bible says later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual work in the measure of every part, making, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now that's a lot of words. That's kind of a difficult verse to understand. What the Bible's saying is, God gave everybody to the church to perform a complete body. Everybody has a task. When I was in college... Uh, I had a friend who uh, we were on the same flag football team. And me and this friend, had, we'd kind of gotten close through football. 
Turns out he was from right here, close. We had gone to youth camp together. And so we started spending some time together. We had a lot of common interests. We both hunted, and we both hunted. And so that's really all we needed. <laughs> and, and we talked about it. We had fun together. Well, we were on the same, fan, uh, not fantasy football team, but the same football team, real flag football. And, and so what we did was uh, uh, we were playing a game one night, and I remember he had to go off the field. And I thought it was odd because we had kind of figured out, you know, everything. Everybody had their own position. But he just walked off the field and he couldn't play anymore. Well, I didn't see any bones sticking out of his body or any blood gushing from his head. So I was wondering, you know, why are you being a little girl on the sidelines? I went over to him and I was like, hey, man, what's up? And he's like, I've got an ingrown toenail. I was like... I was expecting, like, for your spine to be broken or for, for you to get bad news like your father just died or something. But no, you got an ingrown toenail? He's like, oh, yeah. What had happened was, in the course of the game, somebody had stepped on that ingrown toenail. And while that sounds very painful, what was really painful about this is his ingrown toenail pierced all the way through the outside of his foot. And it was visible on the outside. You could see where it went under the skin, and very similar to how a knife blade would penetrate and go through, that's how his ingrown toenail did. So he's, you know, walking all gingerly on. I'm making fun of him the whole way. But if I had had the ingrown toenail, I'd have been getting carried out on a stretcher. So he was probably a little bit more man than I was. But the next day, he was like, man, I think i got to go to the hospital. I was like, what? For an ingrown toenail? He's like, yeah, I need to go. So I, he climbs in my truck, and we go to the uh, California emergency room. It was a little dirty, and uh, uh, Jose, Dr. Jose, I believe, was his name. But uh, uh, it was a very dingy place, but they accepted his insurance. That was strange. But anyway, so we're in this dark uh, a dirty place, and they finally come in, and they prescribe him all these drugs. And I'm like, well, at least you got something out of the deal, friend. And, uh, and so they, I, I, I want to say this right, they amputated his leg. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, they, they took the toenail out. They, they cut it right down the middle and removed basically one half of his toenail. And so we get back to the dorm. And he's in a lot of pain, so what does he do? He takes these drugs. And let me just give you a word of advice. If you're going to take drugs that make you loopy, don't do it in a dorm. Because <laughs> everybody's going to mess with you. So I'm such a good friend. I noticed that the show that was going on in his room with him talking crazy and seeing spiders on the wall... Uh, I said, man, this is too good for only me to see it. So I dragged him out in the main lobby where everybody could see it. We went out and got Burger King, which you could tell he was on drugs because we were getting Burger King. I remember he was so loopy that he had one of those big, like, 50-gallon drinks that they give us nowadays because that's healthy for us. And he had it resting on his chest as he was laying down. And I guess he began to fall asleep. And it just began to pour over the edge onto his face. And I'm such a good friend, I'm just laughing. <laughs> and it was so funny because it was just an ingrown toenail. But that one ingrown toenail inconvenienced him so bad that it basically incapacitated him. He had to be on the medication or else he was crying which, that's a little girly, but I'm just telling you how it was. He was in that much pain. And have you ever been there where you had a toothache and one little bitty thing in your head makes you feel like you, they can just take your head off your shoulders and you'd be quite fine with it? Small problems cause huge effects. You know what a small problem is? The faceless church member. The person who comes, enjoys, intakes, but never does anything to serve. That's a problem. 
Because the Bible teaches that God gave us a body, and He's given us members to complete this body, and they're all fitly joined together just so they all fit, and they all perform flawless, because it's God's plan. God's plan is for you to serve, because you're a part of the body of Christ. You're a part of this church. God's plan is for you to serve. You know the problem is? People are splintering. We have toothaches, and we have ingrown toenails. Are you developing? Are you making a difference where you are? For you to ever hear God's call on your life, get busy where you are so you can find out where he wants you to go. That's where Saul was. He was just busy. Not only do we need to uh, be serving where we are, secondly, we need to be submissive to the call. Verse number 2, the Bible says, And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. The Holy Ghost speaks, and these men hear it. Now, I don't believe it was an audible voice. I believe the Holy Ghost spoke to these men exactly like he speaks to us. He told them where to go. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I know for me, the way I have discerned God's will in my life is an extreme passion and desire. You know the reason I'm not planning a church in California? You know the reason that I'm not in Ohio somewhere pastoring a church of 30? Because God has given me a love for this congregation. More so than you can even begin to imagine. Uh, I could go plant a church, sure. It would not be easy. It would not be convenient. But if God's plan was for me to plant a church, you better believe I'd be planting a church. But God has so deeply ingrained a love in my heart for this congregation. And for those teenagers sitting over there, the fact that when they grow up, they're going to need a pew to sit in. And they're going to need a pew that's not so blocked by guitars and drums that they can clearly see a man of God standing and preaching the Word of God. I have a love for you. I have a love for this church. You know how Paul knew where he needed to go? God said, hey, Paul, I need you over here. I need you to go where people need to hear the gospel. The Spirit of God spoke to them. You say, Brother Andrew, how am I going to discern God's will for my life? Listen. Just open up. You know what I get tired of hearing? I feel like God wants me to do something. I just don't know what. Well, find out. Because every day you don't know, there's somebody that you should be ministering to. I don't care if it's on a bus. I don't care if it's in a Reformers Unanimous program. I don't care if it's in Taiwan or Indonesia. God has a plan for you. Find out what it is. He's, he's never not told his saints where he wanted them. Moses had no problem finding out. Abraham had no problem finding out. Jonah had no problem finding out. Jeremiah had no problem finding out. Peter had no problem finding out. Paul had no problem finding out. Why would you? Listen, be submissive to the call. Man, God's calling people, and what I'm afraid of is people are hearing, they're just not doing. You've got to be submissive. We have to hear the call. You know, this past week they introduced a new cell phone, the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6 Plus, and it can do amazing things. It can, uh, with just your free fingerprint, uh, it can pay for your McDonald's. And, and what I mean is, here in the very near future, every single McDonald's will have at their drive-thru and in their store a little uh, a reader. And all you have to do with your new cell phone is point that cell phone to that reader, put your fingerprint on the deal, and you don't ever have to talk to a cashier. Done. With your fingerprint and a cell phone. It's pretty amazing the 6 Plus has a feature on it whereby you can be riding a bicycle or riding a horse and you can be video, videoing someone and the camera inside the phone is literally mobile and it's moving so that it stays stationary and it stabilizes the picture just like you were on still flat ground. That's pretty amazing. 
You know the one thing that the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6 Plus can't do? Make someone answer who's not willing to answer. And the day they start putting that feature in phones, I'm not going to buy that phone. You know why? Because every once in a while I get 1-800 phone calls, don't you? Oh, sir, excuse me. Oh, man, one that's been getting me lately. Oh, man, they keep wanting to sell me a car warranty. I don't know. They, they say, sir, we uh, figured out that three years ago you bought a car and uh, your, your warranty has run out. And so we would like to extend you this, this warranty. And I say, I already have a warranty through the dealership. And they don't even let me get the words out, and they hang up on me. Every time. This is going on like six or seven times. And they say, sir, we would like to just take me off the list. I'm obviously not a prospect. And they keep calling, and they keep calling. And I'm so ignorant, I keep answering. You know why? Because I'm submissive to the call, and you're not. No, no. It doesn't matter how much technology advances, if you're not willing to answer, the call will never be heard. And as amazing as our God is, as much power as he has and as much authority as he has, you know the one thing he can't do? Make you do something you don't want to do. And yet we sit back, we say, how am I going to understand God's will? Listen for it. Hear it. And I promise you, if you're open, God will reveal his will. You know why? Because the fields are wide unto harvest. But the laborers are few. That's why he'll tell you. Because he's waiting for people to say, I'll go. We have to hear the call. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the year that King Uzziah died and his train filled the temple. And, and there were uh, seraphims and they were uh, shouting, holy, holy, holy. And with two wings they covered their eyes and two wings they covered their feet and two wings they flew. And Isaiah heard a voice and the Lord said, uh, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Isaiah said, uh, I will go, send me. You know why? Because the Lord always reveals his will if you're willing to listen. We have to hear. Not only must we hear the call, but we must honor the call. You see, once we've heard what he says to do, we have to do what he says to do. One of the most controversial sports figures in history was a, a, a name by the man, that was odd to say that way, a man by the name of Muhammad Ali. Very strange uh, uh, character. He was very controversial in the fact that people don't really like seeing outright arrogancy. And he had no humility in him. He told people how he was going to beat people, and then he followed up on what he said he was going to do. He was an amazing athlete, however. Very controversial, though. His original name was Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., uh, but he, it changed due to his conversion to Islam in 1964. So he converted, and his name became no longer Cassius Clay, but Muhammad Ali. In 1960, he won his first gold medal, his Olympic medal. He later, uh, I think two years later, he made his professional boxing debut. In 1964, he defeated the heavily favored Sonny Liston in six rounds to become heavyweight champion of the world. He still is the only man to lose and regain the heavyweight title three separate times. He would lose and he beat people by, he beat George Foreman, he beat Joe, Joe Frazier in a fight that you may recall the name of Thrilla in Manila. That was his second fight against Joe Frazier. He lost his first, won his second, won his third. They were, the first fight was considered the greatest match in history. I think he lost in 15 rounds. He's a controversial figure, however, because in 1967, the United States was at war, and they were at Vietnam. And young men from all across the country were being drafted and sent to Vietnam. 
Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali was drafted. Cassius Clay said this, and I quote, I ain't got no quarrel with the Viet Congs, and he did not go. He refused to go and serve his country on the fact that religious reasons. See, the problem was, and what infuriated so many people was, Muhammad Ali was enjoying the blessings of our land. He was enjoying fame and fortune, which is what our world picture of our American dream is. He was enjoying the beauty of America because if Cassius Clay had been born in Africa somewhere in some tribal village, it doesn't matter how athletic, no matter how strong he was, he was never going to be heavyweight champion of the world. But because he was born in America and because he was an American citizen, he was enjoying the pleasures of America. And when America needed him, he was nowhere to be found. So he evaded the the draft. You know what I'm afraid Christians are doing? Enjoying God and the many benefits that he has to offer. And when God says, hey, I I got somewhere for you to go. I have somewhere I need you to to be. I need someone you you need to minister to. You you say, yeah, that's not really for me. And all the while we enjoy God, we're just not willing to fight for God. The fact of the matter is, there is a battle at hand. The battle is not against the contemporary church as much as we fundamental Baptists think it is. The battle is against Satan. And the fact that he is lying to thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, telling him that there is some fulfillment to be found in this life when there is nothing in this life but heartache, pain, and misery. And we know as Christians the only truth, the only thing that gives us joy, the only thing that makes us wake up in the morning and and do anything is the fact that our God who created us loved us enough to send His Son. And we know the story and we enjoy His many benefits and His mercies are new every morning. And we enjoy God. And He says, hey, I need you to go do something. I need you to be somewhere. I have somebody for you to minister to. And we, yeah... It's not really for me. If you hear God's call, but you're not willing to honor God's call, He has no business calling you in the first place. And I hope there's nobody in here tonight outrightly rejecting the call of God on their life. But if you have been called, have you honored it? Have you followed up on that to the very nth degree, to, to, till God shuts the door on you? Say, Brother Andrew, I, I feel like I'm called to, to grow in the Bible. Well, have you started a discipleship curriculum? Say, no, I mean something a little deeper. Well, have you started seminary? Uh, you say, I've got a family. I think so did Peter. Well, he had a mother-in-law at least, and that's the worst part of the family. So, sorry, Mom, I know you're listening. <laughs> If God calls, are you going to be willing to listen? And more than just listen, are you going to be willing to obey? We must be submissive to the call. Finally, we must be supported in our endeavor. There's two entities that you have to have their blessing. First of all, you have to be supported by the church. Look here. Now, the Bible was written for us, for our learning and for our benefit. And it's amazing to me that even though the Spirit of God called them, look in verse number 3, and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, who is they? Look in verse number 1. Now, there were in the church in Antioch. So what's, what's the biblical pattern for the calling of God on a man's life? To get called and for the church to send. When they laid their hands on those men, they were not giving them something they did not already have. In the New Testament, we as Christians understand that the Holy Spirit of God came upon people, not in some amazing day at Pentecost, but at the point of salvation. The Holy Spirit of God indwells the children of God. That's why the Bible says, 
it, the Spirit speaketh expressly with our spirit because they are one and the same. They speak to each other because He dwells inside of our heart. And we know that. So when they laid their hands on them, they weren't imparting some talent, some gift, some ability. You know what they were doing? They were signifying that they supported the endeavor. They were saying, we support you, we will help you, and we bless you to go. You know why missionaries have to go from church to church to find support? Is because they have been sent out of a local church. Now, not all missionaries, but the ones that come across this platform have, I promise you. They're sent out of a local church, and they are blessed by their local church, and that local church, and sometimes we'll see it on the screens, their pastor will come on and they'll say, Oh, brother so-and-so is a great minister. He served here for seven years as assistant pastor, and God called him to, to Bangkok, and, and so we're excited to see him go. We ask that you would partner with him, and we've heard that. You know what's happening? The church that that man served in and was faithful in, and we've already covered that, you must be serving where you are before God can show you where to go. And so the church that that man was faithful in serving in now is saying, we recognize the call of God in his life, and we ask that you would partner with him as well. Now, how do we partner with him? If, now, we have several missionaries sent out of our church. I can think of a few right off the top of my head. Brother Ryan Ashcraft, Brother Randy Ashcraft, Brother Brian Cohn, Brother Lanny Wood. Is he out of our church or a different church, but back story there? Okay, so we have at least three missionaries that we've sent out of our church who are our missionaries. And then we've had a, a, a multitude of other missionaries who have come across this platform that we partner with and we say, okay, we'll send you. What are we called to do? What is your responsibility? To support them in prayer. Absolutely, but it sounds so obvious, and you look at me like, well, I know that, but are we doing it? These men were praying for them. I heard a quote one time, a man said, uh, do, uh, you haven't done all you can until you've prayed, but once you've prayed, do all that you can. We, we, we give them our money, but their God has enough money. We, we give them our blessing, but they don't need our blessing, God's blessing. But they need our prayers. They need their name and their ministry lifted up before God by us. The Bible says that that's what this church was doing. But then we can also support them financially. Philippians chapter 4. This is the same passage that Paul says, I have learned how to abound, I have also learned how to be abased. For I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. He goes on to say, Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. In other words, Paul was in peril. He was struggling and he needed something. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, not in the beginning of Christ's gospel, but in the beginning when he began to preach the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia... No church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. In other words, a biblical pattern is for the local church to support the ministry sent out of local church. And that's what Paul says. Philippians, you helped me and you supported me. That's an amazing thing. And it is our obligation as a local church to support those that we send. We have to be supported by a church. The Bible goes on to say that the gift that that church gave to Paul, to the missionary, the gift was a sweet-smelling and acceptable sacrifice, not unto Paul, unto God. So if you are called, if you are uh, called to some foreign land, or if you're called to start a church here locally, you must be supported by the church. Secondly, when times get tough, when things are hard, you know what you have to have? You must be supported by the call. You must be supported by the call. Say, so what do you mean? Verse number four. Now, we've established that Paul and Barnabas have been called. Have we not? That's what the Bible says earlier. Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. So the Holy Spirit of God called them. But look in verse number four. So they... 
being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, deported unto a solution. Now, why would the Bible say this again? It's already said at one time, the Holy Ghost spake unto them, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas. Why would it say it again? Because it's saying, as times get tough, as Paul and Barnabas depart on their ministry, and they go on their long missionary journeys, and Paul talks about being shipwrecked and being beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails, and we know all that, the peril and and all the affliction Paul's going to face, they, the Bible here makes sure that we know that it was not their desire to go. It was God's call on their life. And all this talk about God's call and God's will, let me just say, if you're going to sell out and if you're going to say, God, I'll go, make sure that he's called you. You know why? Because you can't do the ministry by yourself. Bus captain... If you are not depending on God to help you do your job, you have no business doing the job. Because it's a God-called thing. And when God calls, He will help. If God is there to call you, He will be faithful and supply. The Bible says, God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. You see, God will always enable those who He has called. And so the Bible says, so they, being called by the Holy Ghost. You know, the ministry is a a, a different type of thing. And I don't have a lot of experience to speak from. I've not been, you know, church planning or anything like that uh, for years. I've not gone out and... uh, you know, been on a foreign field or anything. But I'll say this. Where most people get to go home from 9 to 5 or whatever your hours may be. Some of you have very difficult hours. I'm not degrading that. Some of you drive a truck from, you know, 4 in the morning till 8 in the evening. I'm not saying your hours are not tough. What I'm saying is when you get to go home, how do I say this? You've never had a teenager call you and say he's in jail. You've never had a teenager look at you and say, I've been immoral or I've been looking at pornography and nobody else knows it but me. You've never had a church member come up to you and say, Brother Andrew, I, I, I don't even know that I'm saved and I've been going to church for 50 years. It's different. And I'm not complaining about my calling because... I have made sure that my calling is certain. I have made, confirmed it in the Lord. What I'm saying is the ministry is hard, whether you're a bus captain, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a janitor in the back, the ministry is difficult. Not because of the hours, not because of what you asked me to do as a, as a preacher, but the ministry is difficult because I deal with people and people are not perfect. But you know what I have to rely on? My call. I have to rely on the fact that when God called me, he would be willing to help me through the hard times. Never had to look at somebody who's just lost a child and you're their pastor and they're looking looking to you for spiritual direction. You just say, I don't even know what to say. I'm not complaining, but what I'm saying is tonight, whether you're a janitor or whether you're the pastor of this church, We all need to make sure that the call of God is so heavy upon our life that it's real and that it's valid so that when we're out there serving and working, we're not doing it in our own power. But God says, oh, since I've called, I will supply. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John go to the temple through the beautiful gate. And as they go through, there's a man there sitting and begging, and he says, help. And Peter and John look at one another and they, they say, silver and gold have I none. In other words, we are broke. <laughs> We've got no money for you. You know what their next words were? But such as I have, give I thee in the name of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know what they were saying? I have nothing to offer you 
but I know a man who does. You see, I spent a lot of time with this man named Jesus, and he made a change in my life, and I just believe he can make a change in yours. I have nothing to offer you, but I know that God called me. And if you woke up this morning at 7 o'clock to go pick up bus kids, truth be told, you have nothing to offer those kids better than what my Lord has to offer. So I hope tonight we as a church will seek and we will strive to find the call of God, whether it's locally, whether it's globally. God speaks, but are we willing to listen?